right, so hi, uh, I'm Brian Cordell. I'm a developer advocate at Egalia, and this is the fifth in a sort of a joint series that we do on Blinkons and also on our own thing as Egalia Chats. Uh, this is about the history of the web with people who helped build and form and shape the web early on. Uh, you can view the whole series on our Egalia Chat site. Uh, we've had a lot of different guests, and I think this one is really particularly interesting because uh, I have my coworker and co-host of our Egalia Chats, uh, Eric Meyer. Hello. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's actually it's what uh, old farts like me are good for is telling about how it was back in the day. You kids. Anyway. We have to work in, get off my lawn at least one time. Um, <laughs> okay. So uh, just some interesting things. I know uh, a common theme in a lot of these is uh, these are people who are around before the web, which is like a perspective that is rapidly disappearing, right? So yeah. somehow we got involved in some way. And when the web was not at all a given that it was going to be a thing. And, uh, you know, we're sort of early adopters. Having access to a computer even was still pretty rare in a lot of cases. And uh, having one with internet access and being able to like learning about the web in the first place was not a given. So I'm curious, I always like to ask this question, like what put you in sort of the right place at the right time to learn about these things? And like, how did you get involved with the web? Okay, so um, first of all, I went to school in Cleveland, Ohio at Case Western Reserve University, which is not a military academy. Um, and, uh, I went there to study physics and I graduated with a degree in history and minors in astronomy and English and a couple other things. Um, and I immediately went to work for the university, figuring that if I worked there long enough, I could make back everything I'd given them in tuition. Um, so I was, this was summer, fall 93, 1993, and I was a hardware jockey. I was, um, installing, uh, I think there were... 386 PCs um, to be online card catalog uh, terminals. And the card catalog ran off a mainframe in those days, um, like an actual mainframe. And uh, we just, there was, for some reason, I don't know, there was a grant or something, I'm not sure. Somebody had gotten the money to buy a bunch of these desktop PCs that were just installed all over the libraries, like at least one on each floor, usually more than one on some floors. And then it would open a like a VT100 emulator, and then you could search the online card catalog, um, because we were transitioning away from the paper card catalogs at that point. Um, so I was uh, doing that, uh, which meant going out in the field, but it also meant sitting in the office and you know doing paperwork. But sometimes I didn't have a lot to do, and uh, my. Uh, former roommate, actually, and now co-worker, and the guy in the office next to me, and still a friend, uh, Jim Nauer, um, showed the rest of us in this little library information department this brand new thing called the web, and this brand new program called Mosaic. And uh, most of us, like, I think the rest of us were like, okay, and... <laughs> um, but see, that was before embedded images when he showed it to us. And then when the embedded images came out, he was like, you really need to look at this and like showed web pages with images and you clicked and went from one page to another. And that's when the light bulb went off in my head. Um, so this was probably fall 1993. It was an early mosaic beta. 
Um, and, uh, that's how I got involved in the web. I was immediately taken with it. I had some uh, experience with hypertext in the past, having nothing to do with HTML or the web. So I was kind of pre-sold on the concept. I liked the idea of being able to like go from one point to another, from node to node, as it were. Um, but seeing it like on the internet and being able to like, here's the homepage of CERN in Europe and here's, you know, a different university and here's a library of whatever that just immediately took me. I think at first I thought like my initial reaction was, this is really cool. I can't wait to see what they do with it. And then Jim said, and here's how you make documents and had like a printed copy of the HTML2 specification, which was not very thick. I was like, wait, we could do these. That's awesome. So that's how I got involved. Yeah. I think, uh, I think actually when, before you came to a galley, you and I had a chat and it like, we're very close to the same age. Mm -hmm. Um, and you, you got involved just really a couple of years before me, but, uh, like I actually learned a lot of things early in my career from you because you went <laughs> to Netscape. Yeah. I did. That's true. And you got involved with the CSS working group. Uh, it's actually the other way around with that. So, but um, both things, right? Both things did happen, yeah. but they, they happened in the reverse order. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that I started doing was I started making web pages for the university and quickly realized how simple it could be. Like I was, I thought, most people could do this, actually, because I, I want to make it clear to everybody. At the time, we had HTML, and we had HTML, right? There was no CSS yet. There was no JavaScript, um, none of that stuff. It was just markup. And what the browsers did is what the browsers did. So there, was this, you, there wasn't even an emphasis on it has to look a certain way. It was just going to look however it looked. Um, and you could do a little bit to tweak. I mean, this is before table markup. But uh, I thought, wow, I could, maybe I could teach the librarians HTML. So I started doing HTML classes and then I wrote some online HTML documentation and that actually got uh, like tutorials with little quizzes. Um, and those got real, that got really widely linked. And so I was able to sort of leverage that into getting the university to send me to some conferences. <laughs> I mean, I did get a, I got a paper accepted, a, a coworker and I, and so the universe, you know, the vice president of information technology was like, you're going to present a paper. I will absolutely pay your airfare to send you to Paris. We were like, score. Um, and that's where I ran into CSS. And so I started documenting, testing and documenting CSS. And that led to various things. And then eventually I got hired at Netscape in like 2001. You became before that an invited expert to CSS through through those, through your appearances at the conferences and your testing on CSS. Yeah. So I eventually developed, I don't want to call it comprehensive, but it was a, a thorough test suite of CSS. Um, it like just went through the specification and each section was like, you know, section 5.2, blah, blah, blah. And so I would have a sec, I would have a test page for the stuff that was in section 5.2. If that was, you know, margin, then it was a margin test. If it was background color, it was a background color test, whatever. And you could click from one to the next to just see like, what does this browser do? Because so in that Paris conference, I saw a presentation on CSS uh, with Chris Wilson, uh, now at Google, 
Um, Hulk and Lee, uh, Bert Boss, the two co-authors of the CSS specification. I can't remember who the other panel member was, but they were just, it was like this new thing. So this is 1996. CSS one isn't out yet. Um, it's like this new thing that we're doing called C cascading style sheets. And it lets you do these things. It was really cool. And so, you know, as soon as I got back, cause back in those days, laptops weighed about as much as a desktop computer does now. So I did not travel with a laptop. I traveled with literal paper notebooks. Um, and so when I got back to the office back in America, I immediately started using CSS and I immediately started loading it into browsers like Netscape and it immediately didn't work. It didn't do what I thought it was going to do. So I started like, okay, am I wrong or is the browser wrong? Like I can't tell. So I started to build these very simple test pages to, you know, to do things like, you know, when I did this combination of styles, this happened, right? So I'm going to test each of them individually and simply. It's like, okay, background color is supported. Great. And padding is supported. Okay, so it must be the combination of those two in Netscape 4 that causes this gap to appear between the borders and the background, which is a, was a real Netscape bug. The background only filled out the content box. So if you had any padding, you could see the, the body background through that gap between, basically in the padding. Um, they fixed that early. But again, right, like I'm just trying to figure out how does this stuff work? So uh, I, very, I started to develop this, this set of pages. Uh, test pages and um, eventually got it to the point that it covered all of CSS one, which was again, not a very thick specification. It was like 50 pages or something. If you printed it out, I don't remember exactly now, but so I took those and I contacted Chris Lilly, who was then chair of the CSS working group. And I said, Hey, I put together this thing, uh, you know, would the working group be interested in this? And he said, he wrote back and said, would you mind if I shared this with, browser makers and the working group I was like, yeah, go for it. Um, that became eventually the official CSS one test suite. Um, cause the W3C at the time didn't have a tradition of testing and, and test suites. Specifications did not carry with them the expectation that there was any sort of like real world testing of whether or not things worked. This is, this is really unintuitive. Um, I, like I've talked about it a number of times in, in my own talks, I, I did a, a, a thing when it was technically, it depends when you measure from, but like the, the 30th anniversary of the web would have been like a couple of years ago. If you measure from Tim's original paper, which, which I do. So, and, um, the, the interesting thing here is like, if you, if you put together like a timeline, right. Uh, mm -hmm. and then you look at when all the things happened, um, it's really clear that like from that you can see things were really rough going at first. Like we, the W3C, like it, it didn't call itself a standards organization. Um, like it, Tim was specific about that in, in the, in his book, he wrote a book. Um, and you know, they had, they made a recommendation, not a standard. Um, right. And there was no, you would think, I mean, today we have web platform tests, um, but yep. I think it was 2012, maybe. I mean, we're talking the W3C was formed in 1995. So to put a, a time window on the things that you're talking about. Um, mm. And 2012, um, I think we had 1% coverage 
in terms of what the web platform was in 2012, <laughs> because that was still, a, it was yeah. still like a really new effort. So actually like the thing that you did to make tests was huge and groundbreaking and like the, um, like the interoperability of things was really bad. Uh, I think it might mm. be worth like talking about some of that because you, then you went to Netscape and you ran, what was the Netscape? Dev Edge? Is that what it was called? Yeah. yeah. It's called Dev Edge. What is now Mozilla Developer Network was at one time called Dev Edge. Yeah, it had some some like obscure things like the fish cam. Yeah. Uh, that, the amazing Netscape fish the cam. Amazing Netscape fish cam. Which, okay. Which dates back to like nineteen ninety four. Tell originally. us about that really quick, just because nobody will know what that yeah. is. So well, maybe a few people watching will. If Chris Wilson is watching, hi, Chris, he'll know. Um, so somewhere in 1990, I think around 1994, I don't remember the exact date. Uh, not too long after the, was it MIT? Somebody pointed a webcam at a coffee mm -hmm. pot. And the whole idea was you could be sitting in your office and you could pull this up on the web to see if the coffee pot was full or not. <laughs> but the URL got around because there was no, like nobody was authenticating anything in those days because there were 16 people on the web. So it didn't really matter. Um, so it was like this, this coffee cam. Not like a heavily guarded uh, trade secret, whether the coffee pot is full either. So, yeah. No, it was literally for the people yeah. in the office to know like, right. oh, there's coffee. Somebody just made a pot of coffee. I'm going to go get right. some coffee. Right? Um, so not too long after that, I believe the somebody in the JavaScript department of Netscape pointed a camera at the fish tank that they had, like have a big fish tank because it's California and corporate offices and proto VC culture. Of course they had a big fish tank, a uh, saltwater fish tank, no less. And uh, they pointed a camera at it. And then the amazing Netscape fish cam like circulated around the web because this was, this was in the days when the, NCSA, the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, which is where Mosaic was developed. They had a weekly thing called the NCSA What's New page. And every week it would be a list of new sites on the web. And there'd be, you know, a dozen, maybe a dozen and a half per week that were new. And it was, I mean, it was short enough. There could be a link. And whoever compiled this would write like a sentence or two about why it was interesting. Right. And it showed up on the what's new page is the amazing Netscape fish cam and like the entire web, which at that point was maybe 167 of us when looked at the amazing Netscape fish cam. I was like, there's a fish swimming right. by like, you know, one frame per second, but you could see the fish swimming by. Um, and they set up like, here are some of the fish you might see and stuff like that. So DevEdge inherited that page, the amazing Netscape fish cam page. And I got to redesign it. So yeah, and that, you know, you would talk about certain features, but a lot of the things they wrote about were like also the quirks and incompatibility issues, right? Like you wrote about, um, yeah, which is like interesting to try to talk about and convey. Like, so before this, we had a little organization where, you know, we, we talked about what we would want to talk about. And one of the things that we both went, oh, yeah, that's like, kids today right like we had, we had no dev tools there were none like there were no dev tools no um, nothing you could use an alert that's pretty much what you could use um yep. your your dev tools were alert document.write and view source 
Yeah, and a lot of people watching this are like, well, what about console.log, right? But no, there was not console.log. There was no, no console. Because there was no console. <laughs> exactly. There was no console.log too. And then long after, um, there were uh, some kind of dev tools. Like, uh, I think, uh, what was the, Venkman was the JavaScript yep. um, tool. Yeah, JavaScript debugger. As we as we would understand understand debuggers today, you know, like setting breakpoints and stuff like that. So Vangman, yes, was added to Mozilla. Oh, geez, I don't remember now. But it was it was kind of one of those very early things where it's like you could actually set breakpoints and and step through your JavaScript code. That was, I mean, mind-bogglingly revolutionary at the time. A lot of these things, I think, also started as like extensions. They weren't even um, like mainstream in the thing. Yeah, Joe Hewitt's Firebug became basically a web inspector. Yeah, uh, and I think what's really interesting about this is that even once we had things like that, um, well, first of all, they were ragged. Like it was not. Um, you had these longer release cycles. Yeah. You had a really long period where Microsoft left. The game and like it, it just sort of stalled and yeah. <clears throat> so even long long after we got uh something simple like console.log if you can believe it uh it was not compatible in the most rudimentary of ways um <laughs> like uh <laughs> microsoft i believe it was i i know it was six but i believe it lasted until maybe even 10 um it was a long time anyway um, where the console object, uh, you would, you know, you're a developer, so you you open your your computer and you open your dev tools because like that's where you live and breathe, right? Like once you have them, right. you're like, I, I just keep them open all the time while I'm developing this site. And then you click ship. And you know, some people argue maybe you shouldn't be sending console.log stuff. In fact, Microsoft did argue that. Um, mm -hmm. you shouldn't be sending that to production. But um, right. I think there are totally valid and valuable reasons to have logging in production sometimes. Yeah. And uh, the the thing is, when you close the dev tools in, in Internet Explorer, the console object would go away. And so mm. uh, it would throw. And then anything after that, you know, in that context wouldn't run. And so very frequently, like, you could push something and it worked great as long as you have dev tools open. <laughs> But if you didn't, nothing would work. Right. Then it, your JavaScript broke. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm curious, like from the outside, I've watched standards, you know, for a long time. And I don't know how many people watching this, like, watch standards to this level. But we, we did have this, like, period where, like, the W3C seemed very, very like promising. I was all in like anything that they would have worked on or picked up. I would have assumed it was as if it was written in on stone tablets, you know, <laughs> um, it was just a matter of time before we would get it interoperably on all the browsers. Um, but it, it turned out to not be that way. And that's not unusual. And even today, uh, you know, things follow a, a bumpy path, like, we get an idea, maybe even a browser gets interested, maybe they even develop it. Um, and, you know, along the way, it we find a better idea or uh, like something else comes along. And I'm just curious, like, is there any 
standard thing that you saw come like be a proposal, get serious consideration and be sort of interested and excited about that ultimately just didn't happen or hasn't happened yet or like um yeah there were there were quite a few the serious consideration though that's that's an interesting question i mean all the things that come to mind were seriously considered by at least the people who were working on them whether or not browser makers or the relevant working groups seriously consider them i guess is is a little more fuzzy and i don't i don't want to comment on that but there was um there was a simple vector format uh, before there was SVG. And the syntaxes are actually not very similar. SVF was not based in XML because I think it might predate XML. Interesting. I, that promise was fulfilled by SVG eventually. Mm -hmm. um, but it's 95 or 6. I don't remember clearly. I remember sitting in a birds of a feather meeting about people interested in vector formats and SVF was, was heavily discussed. Um, there was a, a P3P, which uh, I'm still sad didn't go anywhere. That uh, P3P stands for Platform for Privacy Preferences. And the idea was that you could, as a user in your browser, set what levels of privacy you were comfortable with at a fairly fine grain level. Um, and then servers would be required under the specifications to honor those. So if, you know, I, I don't remember what the exact levers were, but let's say there was a lever for no third-party cookies. Like you could set that at the browser preference level. And, um, and you could set like certain, I think the idea was that you could kind of do them on sliders, right? So like the bottom would be never track me with cookies at all. And then we sort of got some preferences like that, but there, there were, there were many levers you could fiddle with, and mm -hmm. it was designed as uh, a specification where you could, you know, it didn't, it didn't uh, prescribe only these levers and never anymore. It was more like here are the core levers, but then you can like more could be developed. Right. Um, I really liked that one. I was sorry that it never went anywhere. Um, there are various reasons uh, we could we could speculate as to why, and you know I think the most sort of crucial things did eventually get set right. So in browsers now, when it comes to cookies, you can say, you know, set all cookies, I don't care, or mm -hmm. only set first party cookies, or never set any cookies, right? A lot of per site things too in, in browsers. Yeah, a lot, a lot of per yeah, a lot of per site things, and that was. Anyway, um, there were a bunch of HTML elements, particularly in HTML 3.0, not 3.2, um, that I really wish had happened. FN for footnotes. This is a great segue, I think, into, uh, you know, I was going to ask about, we were talking about like the, the things that you've seen come that you were like, I wish it had made it. <laughs> um, specifically in terms of yeah. like, let's say HTML, we can do CSS too, if we have time, but I'm curious about HTML and the sort of anecdote that plugs very closely into the thing that you were mentioning before about headings. I just would like to say that, um, if you wonder about the H1, H2, H3, H4, um, those are legacy that were inherited by HTML that had been around for a really long time since like the sixties. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
the very first uh, real email that Tim sent to WW Talk, which was mailing list where people were to discuss, they was set up to discuss right. um, the web. Uh, Tim sent, this is the current state of HTML in my one browser that has implemented it. Right. <laughs> and um, this H1 to H6 stuff is kind of, we should probably get rid of it. <laughs> Just make a section with a heading tag. That would be great. Yep. Just H. That is my biggest, uh, golly, I wish we had got that. Like, Yeah. So what about what about you? Can you tell me some? Do you like the person one? I like person. I like note and footnote. There was a credit element. So you could like, here are the credits for this page or here's the, um, in a, in a figure or a block quote, you could give credit. Um, uh, there were, there were several others. They're not instantly coming to mind, but it, there were some interesting, I think there was an AU tag to implement, to represent the author. It's just to denote where Australia is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is the Australian part of the page. You know, AU crikey. Yeah, it's really fascinating is that um, you can imagine so many semantic elements. Um, and it probably has a lot to do with why we wound up going down a very deep semantic rabbit hole for a little while there. But if you look at yeah. like the amount of time spent debating a lot of those and like the implementation of them is almost like it's mm. nothing. And you, you could just, yeah. you could use the element in your page today. And if everybody used it, then we would have to write it down <laughs> as long as you agree. Right. Like that's how dictionaries work. Yeah, pretty much. Most dictionaries. Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's really interesting. Address is another interesting element where, we we wrote it down and said it means specifically this, like it must mean this, and mm. nobody intuits that that's what it should mean. Like it was not supposed to mean like a street address, right? Right. But yeah. everybody used it as a street address, and so we had to go back and say, I, I guess it's yeah, street address is fine. <laughs> um, yeah, I that's along the lines of what you're saying, like a lot of standards today, like they have to write down like what people actually did ultimately. Yeah. And so we can prescribe a way, but if people don't use it that way and they use it some other way, we have to come back and write down the truth. Right. And this is, this is why JavaScript polyfills and preprocessors, even though I rare, I, I'm like, I don't, hardly ever use either of them myself. Yeah. I have nothing against them. Uh, it's just for what I do, not things that I use uh, for the most part, but um, they're super useful for what are people doing? Let's write that down. You know, there's stuff in the CSS color level. Is it four or five? Whatever the latest working draft uh, CSS color uh, specification is that has stuff like, you know, current color, darken 40%, which is stuff you can do with SAS mixins, you know, where you can have like color shifting functions. Um, and that's, again, a thing where the working group saw what people were doing in the field and now is trying to write it down in a way that like fits with CSS syntax and also does not clash with directly with the syntax that's already in use in preprocessors. That's a whole rabbit hole we don't really have time to get into. Uh, but they try not to step on each other's toes for the most part. 
Um, right. So yeah, that's why uh, th that I really like both of those things existing in the world, preprocessors and, and JavaScript polyfills. Because with JavaScript, um, you know, you can trial uh, proposed specification. Uh, we worked on the temporal API, or still working on it, um, uh, JavaScript API for for times, time and dates here at Agalia. And uh, there's a JavaScript polyfill um, or, you know, JavaScript library that basically does its best to implement the temporal API before browsers had committed a line of code to supporting this API, right? To sort of trial it out and figure out, okay, like what have we not thought about? <laughs> Super great. And, uh, and all that's, that's moving forward and temporal is starting to land in browsers, at least parts of it. Um, and it's working that forward. It's really cool. It really is a nice, uh, it really is nice on, on multiple fronts. Like one is um, the standards can take a really long time. And the, the more sort of talk there is and everything, the more like multiple ways it can go. And everyday developers, like they have things to do, right? They, yep. they can't, most can't afford to track a, a feature for seven years, but they can, once you give them a standard, tell you like, did it meet your needs or like, was it just terribly painful to use or, mm. and the benefit of those things is they could really tighten the feedback loop. I think where like, it is a good incentive if you have a need for somebody to say, well, there's not a standard yet, but there is like a polyfill and mm. like, try it. And like, if mm -hmm. it meets your needs, let us know. And if it doesn't right. meet your needs, also let also, us know. Yeah. Um, like, how did it not work out for you? How did it yeah. break? How did it limit you? Exactly. That That is a big, big change, I think. Um, I think other big changes is um, like lots of the... Lots of the teams, like the players have moved and the, the sort of philosophy, how we think of the companies behind things has really changed. Like a, a lot of the people from Microsoft are at Google and people at Mozilla are at Google or Apple. People from Google are at Apple. <laughs> it's Yeah, it is, it is interesting because for a while there, there was that period where sort of people became associated with organizations. So, mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, you know, Chris Wilson was at Microsoft like, yeah. for a long time, right? Yeah. And he's a Microsoft guy. Well, he's been at Google for like a decade, 15 years. I don't even remember. He's been there forever. Yeah. And I have I'd... to remind myself, oh yeah, Chris is not at Microsoft. He's at Google. Um, Definitely. And that's not new. But yeah, to, to watch people move around from one organization to the other. I mean, you, I suppose you could, Sort of say the same as me. I, of me, I I was at Netscape for a couple of years, twenty years ago, and now yeah. I'm at Agalia, which is another implementer, basically yeah. a browser manufacturer, um, and massive contributor to, you know, Chromium and WebKit and uh, stuff like that. So, um, and and Gecko for that matter. Um, but uh, I did take like twenty years doing other stuff um, on my own. But, yeah. you know, it's, uh, yeah, the, and getting the perspective of people who have hopped from place to place is always really interesting, right? It's like, okay, I've, now I've worked at every major browser manufacturer and, you know, here's what I think about this process. And, you know, have to at least listen to that, in my opinion, yeah. because someone Absolutely. who's been on the inside of these various processes, if they say, look, here is the way to not go about doing X, 
mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, implementing such and so. It's like you give that weight. You don't, doesn't necessarily mean you, you know, blindly follow what they're saying, but you really have to give that weight because they've, they've seen how the sausage is made in this case. Yeah. And, um, you know, speak from the experience of, look, I've seen it from inside these teams. And then I can, I can tell you right now, if you approach trying to get something done in this way, you're just going to bounce off a brick wall basically. And if you try it this other way, you at least have a chance. <laughs> so we're rapidly running out of time. Nope. Um, but there is uh, like one more thing that I would love to give you the opportunity to talk about, which okay. uh, came up. I had asked you to think about like what was like one of your favorite projects that maybe even people don't like associate with you with or or know mm. about. Uh, and huh. you you mentioned uh, do, well. Do you want to? Yeah. Um, one of the f- so. I have a couple of, I have bookends and I, I, I picked the term advisedly. One of the first projects that I did after sort of put it, making the university website was um, <clears throat> two of the professors of our history department, uh, one of whom I'd taken classes from while I was getting my degree. Um, actually, I think both of them now that I think about it. Anyway, they had written the Encyclopedia of Cleveland History. So, Encyclopedias of urban history are just kind of a thing, right? There's an encyclopedia of Chicago history, you know, New York history, uh, San Francisco history, Cleveland history. So they they had written the Encyclopedia of Cleveland history and the Dictionary of Cleveland Biography, right? Which was a separate volume that, like Victor Schreckengost, who's a, a very influential uh, mid 20th century designer, was a Cleveland native, um, lived to be 102, um, and actually lives right lived right near where I live. Um, anyway, you know, so things like that, um, you know, uh, Jesse Owens, Cleveland native. So he's in the dictionary of Cleveland biography, et cetera. So they wanted to, they had seen where the, I think it was the encyclopedia of Chicago history had put some of their articles on the web and they said, we want to put everything on the web. So we did. Um, we basically did it. It wasn't XML cause this was again, sort of before XML, but we basically made up our own markup language stored it in a database and then had output filters that like output that to HTML. Uh, The Encyclopedia of Cleveland History is still online. I believe it's at ech.cwru.edu. Obviously, well, maybe not obviously. I haven't had a hand in it in a couple (laughs) decades now. Um, But like I led that project and I, it was the first example of the entire text of a Encyclopedia of Urban History being made available online for free. That's awesome. Yeah. And like, you know, I have a degree in history. Clearly I have love for the subject. Um, and I, so that was really fun. Um, and then just recently, like literally uh, this this year, um, uh, a colleague and I, uh, uh, Chris Griffith, um, we're both kind of uh, space nerds and also students of nuclear history. My degree in history, I actually studied sort of from World War II onward, sort of the Cold War and nuclear arms and their effects on international uh, relations. So there's a, in the study, in the field of the study of nuclear weapons, there's a, a U.S. government publication called The Effects of Nuclear Weapons. It went through three editions, 
the last edition was in 1977. It's the third edition. Um, and it's been available, like you can get PDF scans of it. Um, but that's it. And, uh, Chris and I like each literally own physical copies of it. Um, that's how like everybody who has studied the field has a copy. Basically we wanted to put it online again, full text as accessible as possible, like HTML, raw text, like, you know, none of this PDF scan stuff because PDFs are not very accessible. And, uh, even if they've had the text OCR, sometimes the OCR software does not do a good job. Um, so we did that and that published, uh, we put it online, uh, in August of 2022. So about a month ago, uh, as we record this, um, I'm kind of, I'm proud of, I'm kind of proud of that. I mean, it's a U.S. government publication. It's been in the public domain for years. I mean, because it's a U.S. government publication, it's in the public domain. Uh, it's all unclassified stuff. Like my understanding is that there's a classified version of this book. It, <laughs> it's classified, so we don't get to see it, but this is the unclassified version. So, um, I appreciated it for the history, for my personal interest, and also for taking a text and putting it online as accessibly as possible using sort of the most basic technology we could get away with. Um, the only JavaScript we're using is actually MathJax because there are a lot of mathematical equations in the chapters of the book. And rather than try to like render them all in SVG by hand, which is what we would have had to do, we were like, we're just gonna use MathJax. We'll write it as LaTeX, boom, which, works great. I mean, hopefully uh, MathML will start to become a first party markup language again, uh, in part due to work that Agalia is doing to get it into Chromium. Uh, if we get to that point, uh, I'm absolutely going to go back and the part, the things that can be rendered as native MathML, I'm just going to translate, I'm going to like turn them over into MathML and the things that for whatever reason can't, if there are any, then I'll leave them as MathJax. Anyway, so those are two things um, that I'm 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 really proud of because they're taking information and putting it online. That's sort of what drew me to the web in the first place. This idea that you can take information and put it online so that anyone can access it, anyone can learn from it. Um, but beyond that, uh, XFN, the XHTML Friends Network, uh, that Tontek Chalik and Matt Mullenweg and I created back in like 2003 which was a way of adding semantics to the web without having to invent new uh, elements um, or entire new languages. It was uh, a way of saying, okay, well, if you class or you use these other attributes in certain ways in these patterns, then you can add semantics. And XHTML Friends Network, though some people might, might not remember that, but uh, people had blogs. And on those blogs, there would be what was called a blog roll. Oh, yeah, it was a yeah. list of links to other blogs that the, whoever's blog you were on were blogs that they liked. Uh, and so the XHTML Friends Network was a way for you to be able to mark each of those links to say, you know, href equals myerweb.com, rel equals uh, colleague met, right. which is a way of saying, this is a colleague of mine. And also I have physically met them in person, right? So it there was the possibility of creating networks of trust, mm -hmm. right? So if you've met, like if if you had a link to my blog on your blog roll and someone's met you and they, they maybe there was a way to expose that you have met me in person, mm -hmm. right? Then I am less anonymous in a way. Yeah, right? There's more reason to trust that I am a person who exists, uh, you know, in a certain sense. Um, that was fun. It, it 
it was the foundation of microformats, mm-hmm. which in a lot of ways uh, was a big influence on schema.org. And kind of social graphs in a way. Yeah, that was what XHTML Friends Network was for. Microformats then took that design principle, the design principles that we used in, in XFN, and applied them to things like uh, marking up calendar uh, events, mm-hmm. uh, so that you could say this is this is the event title, and this is the date, and this is the time, and start time, and the end time, and the blah blah blah. Um, you know, and. Uh, um, I'm blanking on one of the other. There were several microformats. And again, this probably sounds familiar to people who are saying, oh, so you ripped off schema.org. Well, no, the, the arrow goes the other way. I'm not saying that the schema.org people ripped off microformats because microformats were absolutely a, here's a thing anyone can use and be you sure. know, yeah. influenced by. Um, and it seems like they were influenced by. Um, there was one other project. Yeah, it's time. So I have not, like maybe three people in the industry know that I did this. Um, but back in 2005, um, the, there was a team at Apple responsible for the website, apple.com, who felt like they should get away from their table and space or GIF markup of their site and convert it to standards to like semantic HTML and CSS. And, uh, through one, through various uh, set of circumstances, I ended up doing that project. Uh, I worked with, uh, uh, with my contact at Apple, um, produced a style guide, produced a markup guide, um, converted a bunch of top level pages, from table and spacer to, you know, divs and CSS, or, you know, I made this markup as semantic as I could. But it was internal, right? The look and feel yeah. didn't change. Right. It was all about the code. The, there was no change to the design of, of the site. And that was, in fact, one of the project constraints. And it was one of the challenges, right? Because if somebody did a thing that was difficult at the time to do in CSS, I had to figure out a way to make it happen. Um, which again, like we didn't have grid, we didn't have flexbox. We, like all we had was floats and positioning, basically. So I had to figure it out from there. So I did that, um, and that's why actually a thing that got that's been noticed over the years. Um, anywhere there was a bit of legal ease, it's in Wikipedia. Like the, this this bit. Okay. Okay. No. So, <laughs> uh, so if there was like the legal notice would say class. I set a class of Sosumi, which is a uh, it's like a System Seven, I think, or Mac OS Seven or Eight sound, like a system sound called Sosumi, and I made like this plinking sound. There's a whole backstory that I'm not going to go into, but it was. But you should look it up because it's it's great. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's called Sosumi because Sosumi <laughs> is what it was, but it it was written to look like it was like a Japanese term or something. Um, so it's S-O-S-U-M-I. So I, as we were doing this, and I got down to the footer of the site where there was like, you know, like copyright 2005 Apple incorporated all rights reserved, blah, 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 blah. Whatever the legalese was at the time. Um, I was like, okay, I want to represent this with a class because it's small and it's gray and it's... Uh, anyway, I'm going to represent it with a class. And I said to my contact at Apple, is you okay with it if I call this class equals Susumi? Because I think that would be a really fun little 
Easter egg in the markup. He was like, yeah, totally go for it. So I did. Um, and so that's, that's, you can still find it in various little places. Uh, it's mostly faded away. Um, so that's why I guess I feel comfortable talking about it. now. Yeah. It's, it's noted. I mean, it, it's noted people have pointed out you can you can search for it um not not that it was you but that you know this Sumi class a lot of people right finding the easter egg in there yeah. and getting a giggle out of it and sharing yeah. it yeah so yeah it's it's been long enough and when you asked the question and i thought about it, i was like you know should i talk about it i, re- I kept it quiet now for 17 years but yeah it's yeah. time i think that's long enough um i could have waited for 20 but yeah, whatever. 17 is fine. So, um, yeah, that, but that was a really fun project. It was cause yeah. it was, it was a real challenge, but, um, great story though. It's fun working with Apple, even if on the down low. Yeah. Um, cause I'm, I'm mostly an Apple guy. Um, have been since, uh, since my university days when I worked in a Macintosh computer lab. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun and it, uh, it was great working with people inside Apple, uh, getting to visit the campus at one point. And it, between that and working with people like, not working with as in like being employed by, but but interacting with people like Chris Wilson when he was at Microsoft and now at Google, uh, Tontek when he was at Microsoft, um, you know, Dave Hyatt when he was at Apple, um, and before that when he was at Netscape, um, getting in a you know getting a and a feel for like what it's what what the people working on the insider like yeah i think has been a real been a real benefit because it's too it's easy to say google microsoft oh, yeah. apple like yeah. these huge titans these monoliths of of whatever you know they're made up of people and the people inside often even if they can't say so have very strong opinions about how the these Titans products should behave and, and what they should prioritize. And those may sometimes be in conflict with what the organization as a whole might want. Um, but they do their best to make it happen anyway. And uh, it's been a real privilege actually to be able to see that. Uh, this is a great final story. Thanks for uh, breaking the news here. Sure. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to finally come clean. <sighs> <laughs> Yeah, so we'll wrap it up, and uh, I guess I'll see you at work on Monday. All right. Thanks, Brian. Talk to you later.